So I'll invite you now to open your pew Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. That is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 16. One of the great blessings of living in the modern era is that we have access to so much information, which even in some of your lifetimes, we did not have. Access, I remember as a child, to information looked like having the full volumes, all the volumes of the encyclopedia on our bookshelves, which were heavy, heavy books. And if you wanted to learn about some far off, for me it was animals, I loved the animal kingdom as a kid, I would pull off these uh, volumes and look through them. Of course, they were alphabetical. But now today, we have instant access to an incredible wealth of information, so much so that it's not only a blessing, but in many ways, it is becoming more and more of a curse. We live in a world today where there's almost so much information, it's hard to know what's true. It's hard to know what's right. It's hard to know what's accurate. There's so much but how do we sort through it? That's the question. How do we know what's true versus what's false? And it doesn't help that there's been an ongoing breakdown of trust in our world today. I, as I was reflecting upon this passage, as we'll see here shortly when we read, Paul's main point here is to try to prove the legitimacy, the truthfulness of his ministry. And this is a issue that we still face 2,000 years later. And so I want to share with you an extended quotation of a commentator who is reflecting upon this passage. I think it's a good place to start as we begin to dig in to our passage tonight. So there's going to be three slides, so bear with me. I'll try to read it well so it makes sense. But this commentator says this, One of the most significant features of Western society today is the breakdown of public trust in various authorities, in politicians, in governments, experts, scientists, in church leaders, in journalists and the media, in constitutional documents, national principles, governmental agencies, and sometimes even the very basic principles of our society themselves. Scandals, revelations of abuse, manifest corruption, incompetence, self-interest and office, and all these sorts of things lead to growing distrust, and that metastasizes into more general suspicion. As the healthy movement of truth in the body of society depends upon a circulatory system of trust, the breakdown of trust will produce the crisis of truth that we currently face. Arresting the progress of this disease is an immense challenge. Without a clear vision and a model of genuine, forthright, and trustworthy discourse, and of the sort of robust and healthful, healthful social relations that can bear the weight of truth, it can be very difficult to address such social sickness. Yet this vision of society marked by the strength of trust and truth is what Paul is presenting us with in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a society seen in God's entrusting of his truth to human messengers who entrust themselves in turn to the recipients of their announcement. It's a society seen in and revelatory of the power of the communication of truth itself as a social bond. 
The genuine communication of the truth requires the communication of ourselves, reinforcing the trust that allows it to circulate. Just as untruth and distrust can cause a society to disintegrate, so truth and the mutual trust and entrusting it produces are health to society's flesh and marrow to its bones. There's a lot to unpack here. But we live in a time when there is so much information, all sorts of truth claims, but there's a huge, massive breakdown in trust, meaning that truth is always questioned. We cannot help but be suspicious of everything we hear. There have been so many public fallouts of those who have been in leadership, whether that's political leadership or societal leadership or even in Christian leadership, that it's hard nowadays to trust the truth. How do we do it? And so this was one of the great problems, as he points out here in this quote, of what Paul was facing here as he writes the book of First Thessalonians. He, write, he was in Thessalonica, he was there for about a month before he has to flee under the cover of night. We read this story in Acts chapter 17. And so as he flees, the people begin, people who have heard his message, and some have become Christians through it, they begin to question the legitimacy of it. And so Paul is now writing this letter, and in this passage, he's trying to counteract some of the thoughts or the arguments or allegations that have been placed upon him. And so we don't really know what these allegations were, but we can sort of piece it together a little bit. And I think there's three things before we read that we can see that Paul was up against. The first is that Paul, they were saying that he was a deserter. He was one who left, who fled under the cover of night. He was quick to leave. Uh, And so that sort of proves that he was kind of a fake. The next one is that Paul was probably something of a charlatan or a fraud. Uh, This makes me think of the story of the music man. If you've seen that musical or remember the movie of this man who comes into River City, Iowa, and he begins to tell them that he's a music man and he's going to form a big city band amongst all the kids and they should pay him up front. And then he's about to leave town, but then he has a change of heart, if you know the story. People were saying Paul was like that. He fled so early, and this proves that Paul was a fraud. He was a charlatan. He was doing it with impure motives for selfish gain. And thirdly, they probably accused Paul of simply being a liar. So they attacked his character, but they also now are attacking the substance of his message. They, he, they would have said that he trafficked in lies and deception. He was just trying to lead you astray. And so these people are beginning to question whether or not their, not only was their messenger, their evangelist, legitimate, but now they're questioning whether their faith, what has happened to them, is legitimate as well. And so Paul is writing to them not so much just to defend his own ministry, but much more so in order to defend these, the legitimacy of these people's conversions. They're, they're, they're being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so he wants to reassure them. And to see how he does this, we'll read. But before we read, let's pray. Our Father, we come now humbly to your word. You are our Lord. You are our shepherd. You are our king. We are your saved people. We are your sheep. 
We are your citizens, Lord, and so you speak, and now we listen. Speak to us, O Lord, and may we hear you and love you and obey you. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with the words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to serve or to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start our reflections tonight on the reading of God's Word with this question. When you think of the Apostle Paul, what kind of person comes to mind for you? What kind of person do you think the Apostle Paul was? Many of us, I think, will immediately begin to think of Paul maybe as a coldly intellectual person. He always had really deep and profound things to say, uh, and it was often quite heady and philosophical, but you may think he probably wouldn't have been great to hang out with, to have dinner with, or to share your life with. I remember back when I was in college, my pastor sharing with me stories of his seminary uh, years while he went to Princeton Seminary. Princeton is famously known as being 
more of a liberal seminary. And at the time that he was there in the 80s, it was kind of a mixed bag. Some professors were quite good. Some were, I would say, less than good. And one such professor, the professor that he had for, the, for reading the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, uh, was particularly uh, hateful towards Paul and would often call Paul uh, with expletives and bad words a lunatic. Paul was a crazy person. He was this person who was a sexist. He was racist. He was pro-slavery, all of these things. Paul was a horrible person, not the kind of person that you'd want to hang out with. Now, I doubt that that's probably the way most of us feel, but I think it speaks to maybe the sort of popular view of the Apostle Paul. But I think that this is a passage which, in contrast to that view, shows us Paul's character. It shows us, once again, the warmth of Paul. I think if you really study the letters of Paul, you will see all the grand vistas of intellectual heights. Uh, those are great places. The, b- b- the book of Romans is a great place for that. But also, if you really read Paul, you'll see like passages such as this, Paul's heart, his warmth. Now, he probably was a really fun person to be around and to share your life with. But again, his aims here are apologetic. He is offering a self-defense of his ministry and again of the legitimacy of the faith and the salvation that was happening in Thessalonica. He wanted them to know really that the word of God was active among them. And so his argument takes shape here in this passage in three sections, which we can think of as major lessons for ourselves as we think about how we too might share the gospel with those around us. And I will say at the outset here uh, that I, I get these three points from another pastor named Alistair Gledhill of a church called All Souls in London. Uh, I found it really helpful, and I figured I would use it and adapt it for our time tonight. And so the first lesson coming in verses 1 through 6, which we'll start with, is live with integrity. Live with integrity. So in these verses, we see Paul really getting to work, trying to make his defense, trying to set the record straight. And again, while it's a little bit unclear what these accusations were, we can begin maybe to get a sense of what was being said about Paul just through reading this passage. And one thing we might say, as we looked at already, was that Paul was a deserter. That was probably something that was being used against Paul. Back in the story of of Paul's time in Thessalonica, he was forced to leave under the cover of night to sneak out of Thessalonica after being there for only a few weeks. And so he sneaks out, and the the accusations we might sort of infer would have looked something like this. Any true messenger of a living God would have had a successful ministry here, and he would have been fine to just stay. And so the fact that your messenger, Paul, had to flee because he was going to get beat up because we were riding, it just shows that your God's really not that powerful. It probably just shows that your God's fake and that Paul was a fake messenger as well. And this is because in the ancient world, in this, in this time and place, it was the sense that victory or strength or success was equated with divine blessing, whereas suffering was equated with divine curse. And so people would have thought Paul was forced out through persecution. We now ourselves are being persecuted and ridiculed both by the, our fellow Gentiles and by the Jews in our city 
maybe this means that this whole God, this Christianity thing is a scam. Paul actually then turns this on its head, and he begins to say at the end of the passage, uh, starting in verses 14 and 15, how this is actually not the case. Suffering for the Christian is proof that God is with us. So he writes there in verses 14 and 15, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So Paul defends his ministry by saying that this is what Christians everywhere face, and it's because Christians follow the the Lord Christ who himself suffered, who himself faced uh, different different accusations and different persecutions, and of course went to the cross uh, for us. But Paul also defends his ministry not by just taking this tack. He also just straight up says in verse 3 that our appeal does not spring from error or from impurity or from any attempt to deceive. He is essentially saying, we're not lying to you. Our message is true. This is not our intent to lie to you. But he goes further then in the next verses and talks about how he never engaged in flattery or he never tried to have a pretense for greed or to wear a mask in order to, to, to acquire greed or wealth for himself. This would have been a common feature of ancient life for, to have sort of traveling philosophers come into your town who, for a price, uh, you can pay them a lot and they will tell you some interesting things. Paul is saying that we were never out for ourselves, but he also goes even further. And he says that we were not telling you things that you wanted to hear. We were not trying to please you. We were trying to please God. And so Paul is beginning to say, look, we're not doing this for ourselves, but we're also not doing this just for you. Our intent and all that we've done has been simply to please the Lord, to speak what is true. The Christian evangelist, any Christian who seeks to share the gospel message, is to have the job of the postman. You are to deliver the message, not to tamper with it in any way. The postman is not allowed to open the message and change it and put it back in the mail and send it on its way. The postman simply delivers that message. The Christian then must do the same. Paul is essentially saying that that is what we've done. But there's more lessons in this little section, more little micro lessons, you might say. There's various temptations that Paul is inferring that evangelists or those who share the message of the gospel will face whenever they are setting about to share the gospel. The first temptation that we all face is to not share the gospel at all. Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, who were with him, had just been beaten up and arrested wrongly, unjustly, in the city of Philippi before they travel a day's journey by foot into the city of Thessalonica. You can imagine that they were probably badly beaten, badly bruised, and bloodied up, and yet they go to the next city. They've just been persecuted for their faith, and they go. They could have thought, you know, we might as well just go home. We might as well just not share this message at all. Yet they do. They move forward. That's the first temptation. So Paul makes that note. But the second temptation is that, that we face is the, the temptation to twist the message, is to 
unwrap the, the envelope and put our own words, our own twist on it so that we can gain ourselves or that we can simply tell people what they want to hear. The Christian does not do this. So Paul, in all of this passage here in these verses 1 through 6, is trying to uh, shore up his integrity. He's trying to argue that we have lived with integrity among you. And so we, begin to, we can begin to ask ourselves that, that question for ourselves. Are we as confident in Paul in inviting others to evaluate our integrity? Are we living with the integrity that we should and ought to have as Christians? Paul is sharing with, this, with them this message, and he's wanting them to believe that he is a man of integrity. And so he goes on in the next passage, the next section, verses 7 through 12, to uh, offer his proof that his words, his message, is matched by his life. And so if these words in verses 1 through 6 are true, the, the, the readers may be asking, well, Paul, what proof do you have? If you've said you've not been trying to exploit us or to get any selfish gain for yourself, what's the proof? And so in verses 12, or 7 through 12, Paul begins to tell them. And we could sort of summarize this section up under the heading of love with sacrifice. Paul is now going to show them how he loved with sacrifice. So reading 7 through 12. But we were gentle among you. And actually other translations will put this We were like young children among you. And we'll look at that in a second. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, that this is important, but also our own selves, our own lives. We were sharing our lives with you because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." And so in this section, we get a glimpse of the true ministry that Paul conducted and what true ministry then for us ought to look like, whether it's the ministry of apostles like Paul or pastors like Mark and I, or of any lay person seeking to be a minister to those around them. So as the sermon title tonight suggests, we are to think about the ethics of evangelism. Our message needs to be matched with our lives. So anytime we engage in this kind of ministry, then we're going to have to love with sacrifice. We're going to have to serve people sacrificially. Paul talks about how we worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to you, so that you wouldn't have to pay us. We, We wouldn't exploit you for greedy gain, but that we could serve you for free, to serve you without cost. This is a demand that Paul is willing to to take on for himself. And so you may have also noticed, though, that there's familial language scattered throughout this section. Paul begins to talk about how he loves them and cares for them and how they served among them. And to do so, he uses all kinds of familial language. Interestingly, as I pointed out, in the ESV, in verse 7, we see that 
he writes, we were gentle among you. This could also be we were like young children among you. And so the arguments textually about this could go either way, really. And personally, I, I think that because of the full familial language that he uses, talking about mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, that he probably also is getting at this idea of young children. So I, I put up these two verses as a comparison. The first from the ESV, but the next one comes from the NIV. And I'll have the slides just go to the next one. You can skip one ahead. So you can see in the NIV, the bottom translation, it reads as so. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Whatever the case, whatever Paul is saying here, whether it's gentle or we were like young children among you, he's really trying to show these readers his great love for them. The ways in which his message was backed up with his life and his conduct among them. And so in verse 9, for example, he asks them to remember again that he was self-employed while he ministered among them so that they wouldn't be a burden. Another final interesting bit to note here in this section is just to think about uh, what correlations Paul draws between mothers and fathers and young children and brothers and sisters. We can see, just by looking at mothers and fathers, for example, uh, that mothers, it's the tendency of the mother to nurture and to care for her children, to give herself in that very deeply self-sacrificial way. And this isn't the case. it's It's not the case that men or fathers can't do this and don't do this or shouldn't do this. But it's the tendency of the mother to do this more. It's, it's a natural inclination. Whereas for the father, it's a natural inclination to exhort and to encourage and to charge. Again, not that mothers can't do these things either. But there are sort of realms in which the two occupy different sorts of responsibilities. Uh, and they share those together as they raise their children. I just found that that was an interesting thing to consider as we think about this passage. But all in all, this passage teaches us about gospel ministry. We should be childlike in our humility. We should be motherly in our care for people, self-sacrificial. We should be brotherly in our mutual labor, and we should be fatherly in our encouragement and in spurring one another on towards obedience and holiness. And this leads us finally then to our last lesson from verses 13 through 16, which we might summarize as this. Listen with obedience. Listen with obedience. And so we'll read this passage again as well. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things that your own countrymen, or at, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them. At last. 
So once again, Paul wants to reassure his readers that what has happened to them in their souls was real. And so he concludes this final passage by confirming to them and encouraging them that the Word of God did actually get received by them, and that the Word of God was actually at work among them. And this is a fascinating point. When we hear the phrase, the Word of God, we immediately think of our Bibles. And that's not wrong. Our Bibles are the Word of God, the written Word of God. It's quite clear from the passage that Paul is not meaning here the Bible, the physical book of the Scriptures with the 66 different books. What he's meaning here is the gospel, the proclamation of the Christian faith in its fullness. Paul, I, I think, would say he, didn't, he wasn't there long enough to really fully share everything he wanted to. Later in this, in this book, as we get to the later chapters of 1 Thessalonians, he begins to fill in some questions that these people had because he didn't quite get to teach them everything he would have wanted. And so he begins to teach them questions about the end times, eschatology, and what happens with death, and, and what, what can our assurance be of the life beyond. But here Paul does tell them the Word of God has legitimately been preached to you, and it is legitimately at work within you. He has heard a report from Timothy, who has gone up to visit Thessalonica and come back with news, and Paul is rejoicing to see and to hear the news that God's Word His gospel is at work in these people's hearts. We might say then that this, when it means, or when we read the words, the word of God here, we might use the words of John Calvin, who simply says that this means the living and efficacious doctrine of God. This is not merely the audible proclamation of the gospel. The Jews who hated Paul and booted him out of the city, they would have heard that with their ears as well. The word of God is not just the physical audible words, but it's the spiritual words that penetrate into our souls, that change us from within. So I love that Calvin uses the language of living and efficacious doctrine or living and efficacious teaching. It's teaching that does something in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It brings conviction, and as a result of that conviction, it brings obedience. And so what's the effect of the Word of God? Well, we see this in verse 14 again. The effect of hearing the preached Word of God and receiving it truly in your soul will be suffering. That's not exactly what we may want to hear, but it means that those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ now are going to live as outsiders in this world, which means that this world in its current state is not our home. It's not where we truly belong. We are citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom that is still in many ways yet to come. And so he tells them, he reminds them in verse 14, he uses the word for, he tells them the word of God has been among you and his proof comes in verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The basis of Paul's certainty that they have had the word of God in their hearts is that they are suffering now for the sake of Christ. The effect of the gospel is that in one way or another, we will all pay a price. God's grace is free, but it is costly. It's a great, uh, it's a great complexity of the Christian faith. It's 
free from God. It doesn't cost a thing to us. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's given to us without price. And yet it will cost us our very lives. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 20, writes these words, and you can see them on the screen. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So do you suffer for your faith? Following Jesus is a life full of tremendous benefits and blessings, but does it ever cost you? If it doesn't cost you, and all it is is just pure blessing, and it never affects anything in your day-to-day life, you may have question or reason to question the authenticity of your faith. So taking a step back, what we see in this passage, once again, is a plea from the Apostle Paul to these New Thessalonian Christians to reckon with the legitimacy of his ministry and therefore the legitimacy of their conversion, the legitimacy of what God has done by his Spirit in their hearts. And so though they faced opposition, they were ridiculed by Jews in the city of Thessalonica as well as their own countrymen, the Gentiles, the different Greek speakers. Paul's angle here has been to reestablish the genuineness of his message so that this little beleaguered congregation who only heard the gospel preached to them for a few weeks would be encouraged to know that God truly is at work among them. Their zeal and their faith in the Messiah are real. And so here we learn that as we live and share the gospel, we must do so with integrity. Our words, our proclamation must be matched more and more by our lives. And one major way you could say the lesson from this passage is to close the gap. Close the gap in integrity between what you preach and how you live. And so at the outset of our time tonight, we started with the recognition of the breakdown of trust in our society How then do Paul's words here challenge us to move forward? How do we move past this obstacle? He argues here simply that he can be trusted because his life matched his proclamation. He shared not only the gospel, but also his own life with them. He gave them everything. He did so not for any gain for himself, but only to bless, to love, and to serve those around us. This is the way that the Christian will live because it's the way that our Lord has lived with regard to us. Amen? Let's pray.